0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today, and it is my pleasure to do so. So happy to be with you. As a reminder, you can find this program and every program at TonyPerkins.com. You can also find Tony on Gab at, at Tony underscore Perkins and encourage you to do so. Also, go ahead and grab the app on the App Store, the Stand Firm app on the App Store and on Google Play, so you can get all of FRC's offerings to you directly to your phone. You never do know when people are going to be deplatformed these days. That's the way to make sure that you don't get cut off from the information. That you need. Today on the program, we are going to uh, enlighten you. You give us some time, we give you knowledge. That's the deal here. And a little later on the program, we're going to talk about whether shareholders are trying to make corporate America pro abortion. We'll discuss that with Steve Sukup. We're also going to look at some of the highlights. Are there any of Joe Biden's first 100 days? We'll talk with travis weber about that and then at the end of the program we'll close out the show today discussing whether the way we think about identity is undermining our efforts to achieve equality as we think biblically about identity in one of my favorite segments of the week with david clausen but first at the beginning of the program the biden administration is working to fix the crisis at the southern border by hosting a two-day virtual summit on climate. At least that's how headlines should read if we were to believe what Vice President Kamala Harris said earlier this week when talking about the, quote, acute and root causes of the migrant surge at the border. Here's what Kamala Harris had to say.
2: If you look at the acute issues, in particular that are affecting the Northern Triangle, we are looking at extensive storm damage because of extreme climate. We're looking at drought in an area and a region where agriculture is one of the most traditionally uh, important um, basis for their economy. We're looking at uh, what's happening in terms of food scarcity as a result of that and, in fact, incredible food insecurity, which, you know, we used to call hunger. <laughs> it's food insecurity. Um, and we are looking at, therefore, a number of issues that also relate to poverty extreme poverty, and also um, there's violence, obviously, coming out of those regions. When you look at the root causes, we're also looking at the issue of of corruption. Again, we're looking at the issue of climate resiliency and then the, the, the concern about a lack of economic opportunity.
1: So according to the Biden administration, there is no crisis at the southern border, but there is a crisis south of the border, and it's fueled by another crisis. Of course, that's climate change, the crisis that never ends. So what is the president hoping to accomplish with his virtual summit on climate? With me now to talk about it is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. Rich, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, tell us, what do you make of the suggestion that the problems at the southern border are really being caused by climate change?
3: Transparently absurd. I, I, I haven't followed the drought conditions in northern triangle countries closely, but th- if that was a major factor, it was a major factor five months ago. It was a major factor 12 months ago, but people weren't coming because the Trump administration had found... A a clever solution to this by working with Mexico, by working with Central American countries, by during the pandemic just turning uh, migrants away, including unaccompanied minors. So Biden blew a a hole in, in that regime by saying unaccompanied minors could come in, obviously creating incentive for minors to come, and we have record numbers of minors. Ended the cooperation agreement with Mexico, which was key to letting people have their asylum claims adjudicated before they got got into the United States, which is absolutely crucial because once people are here, they're just they're just as a practical matter never being returned home. Uh, Biden turned his back on that as well, so this is entirely a crisis of his making uh, because of poor ideologically driven policy choices, and they don't know how to get out of this box they've created for themselves, so they're saying a lot of silly stuff, and this climate argument's high on the list.
1: Well, you make a lot of sense. Indeed, uh, the climate has not changed so radically in the last handful of months that something happened to change that situation, but president biden is hosting this virtual climate summit uh, what is he hoping to accomplish what should we be taking away from this
3: well a couple things one they sincerely think that the climate is the single most important issue facing the planet they're they're wrong about that two conveniently it helps them on uh, a couple of other fronts most importantly um kneecapping fossil fuels and creating a, a new, quote-unquote, green economy based on alternative sources of energy and having a much bigger government role in the, the economy in our society, which they've always sought, you know, for the last 100 years. So there, there are a bunch of things going on here, and none of them are good.
1: Now, there's a lot of countries involved in this summit. Is is president biden intending to hold everyone else to the same standards or is that his goal to get everyone to reach the same standards that he's trying to apply to the united states
3: yeah in theory but there's just no way this is going to work i mean just let's look at china so china says they're going to hit peak greenhouse gas emissions in 2030 and then hit net zero emissions in 2060 so 2030 is still, you know, it's nine years from now. Um, and China is obviously not a transparent country. And hitting a peak doesn't really tell you much. You know, they're, they're building coal fire plants hand over foot so that peak could be extremely high such that you know maybe they're slightly lower in 2031 but still three times higher than they are today so really how much progress is that then how are you going to hold china accountable i mean we may have a war a hot war with china over taiwan prior to 2030 so if china turns around 2030 and say actually that's not a peak anymore what are we going to do to to punish them or hold them to account and then 2060 You know, who knows what the world's going to look like in 2060? So there's a lot of virtue signaling here. And even countries that aren't as as, uh, malicious and malevolent as China can't be trusted with these targets. That's been the the experience over the last couple decades. They're very easy to game. You know, all you need to do is say – assume that you're going to have higher economic growth than it's realistic – and um, then, then when your growth comes in lower, inherently you're going to have lower emissions. And then you're like, oh, look, we, we, hit, we hit and exceeded our target when you really haven't uh, contributed at all. And then just finally, this just whole effort is misbegotten. The, the most important thing to do, stay rich, stay technologically adept. Uh, invest in research and, and development um, for, for new energy sources and to understand climate change better, and we'll be in very good shape to handle this problem if it's a serious problem in you know, 80 years from now. But the idea that we, we should hamper our, our economy uh, now and, and destroy good jobs now, for, uh, because in theory, you know, 80 years from now, the, the globe could be facing a, a big challenge just doesn't make any sense.
1: We're speaking with Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review. And, Rich, I'm going to see if I can get you to maybe answer your own rhetorical question you asked a moment ago with respect to China. There are many things that the United States is is trying to negotiate and work out with China, Uh, among those a laundry list of human rights concerns. Where does climate change rank in those concerns that the United States has with China? And what is the Biden administration inclined to prioritize?
3: Well, the Biden administration is, is inclined to prioritize towards the climate. The first Biden official to go to China was the, the so-called climate czar, John Kerry. And, a, again, if we're going to pressure China on something, maybe we should get them to stop committing a, a genocide against the Uyghurs. You know, that, that seems a pretty important human goal. And if we really have so much leverage over China where we can force them to do this stuff, use it to do that. Don't, don't use it to create these bogus uh, climate goals. So Biden is actually, you know, he sounded pretty tough on, on China, but at the end of the day, you, you have to make choices. And if our, if our choice is to emphasize climate over all, all these other really important concerns, including like trying to convince them not to invade Taiwan, uh, we're really making a, a disastrous mistake.
1: Now, now, Rich, you make a good point about kind of the prioritization of the um, Biden administration's concern over climate change. And Within the light, I think it was about a week ago, Project Veritas um, provided us some information that might be helpful, and and they did a an operation, basically a sting, as they do, with uh, CNN's technical director Charlie Chester, who talked about how CNN is going to prioritize the climate issue, and we're going to listen to that for a moment, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond and see how that's relevant to what's going on today, uh, this week with the uh, climate summit.
4: I think there's just like a COVID fatigue, so like whenever a new story comes up, they're going to latch on to it. They've already announced in our office that once the public is will be open to it, we're going to start focusing mainly on climate, um, uh, climate like global warming, and like that's going to be our next like. Um, I don't know. Like, what's the word? It's our. It's gonna be our focus. Like, uh, like our our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was, right? So our next thing is gonna be for climate change awareness.
5: What does that look like?
4: I don't know. I'm not sure. I I have a feeling it's just gonna be like constantly showing videos of like decline and ice and weather warming up, and, like, the effects it's having on the economy, and, and really talking he about it. that, The head of the network, like, just... Who's that? Is that Zucker? Is that, is that Zucker, yeah. I imagine that he's got his council and they've all, like, discussed, like, where they think, um...
2: So that's, like, the next pandemic,
4: like, story, like, that will, yeah, that will we'll be to death. But that one's got longevity. You know what I mean? It's not like there's a definitive ending to the pandemic or, you know, like it'll taper off to a point that it's, you know, not a problem anymore. Probably I think it's going to take years, so they'll probably be able to miss that for quite a bit, you know, so I'm so, going climate change
6: overload,
4: yeah. Be prepared, it's coming. <laughs>
1: That was a reporter from Project Veritas speaking with uh, CNN technical director Charlie Chester. Now, Rich, uh, is that relevant to what's going on this week with the climate summit?
3: Of course. I mean, th- this is this is a goal that everyone on the center left e- embraces. So the media is going to s- celebrate every single one of these uh, commitments from various countries and say how important this is and how far-sighted Biden is for pushing it. Just in terms of CNN, that that. Uh, that clip its not surprising. Um, they're obviously an advocacy organization masquerading as a, a, a news operation, but I just doubt climate is going to rate for people. You know, Trump did rate for everyone, right? I think he was highly entertaining. He was, he was really interesting. Uh, people hated him. People loved him. Uh, climate is just really dull, and may, maybe there'll be effort by CNN and others to, to make it an interesting, compelling, and urgent thing. I just doubt whether many people are going to go along with that.
1: We've got about one minute left very quickly. What do you think is going to come of this summit? Anything?
3: You know, you have these commitments, um, but I, I, don't, I don't think you can, you know, obviously you can't take it to the bank, but Biden is going to push for legislation in Congress. Not sure how much of that he's going to get and then try to do, though, as much unilaterally as he can.
1: Rich Lowry, National Review, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. God bless. This is a a story we're inevitably, whether we like it or not, going to be covering throughout the Biden administration because of the priority they are going to place on it. We're just going to have to find out how much it's going to cost us. Coming up, pressure is being applied to companies to stop donating to politicians and political groups that are anti-abortion and pro-election reform. Where is it coming from? We'll talk about it after the break.
7: What is Roe v. Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe versus Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to FRCblog.com to check out our latest blog posts we cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about all written by our policy government affairs and biblical worldview experts we discuss topics that other media platforms won't like changes in pro-life policy current events that affect christians internationally sexuality from a biblical perspective and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in american culture to stay up to date on current news related to faith family and freedom visit frcblog.com that's frcblog.com
5: would you like to spend more time in god's word then join family research council on an exciting journey through the bible with their stand on the word bible reading plan frc's two-year bible reading plan helps you to approach daily bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of god and how his word speaks into cultural issues By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org/slash Bible.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and the recent attention given to election reform legislation has prompted major investment groups to intensify pressure on big companies to stop donating to politicians or political organizations that don't align with their values. Shareholders are flagging donations to candidates and groups that are, for example, anti-abortion or pro-election reform as bad for business. And in the coming weeks, we'll be seeing which companies will cave in and which will stand their ground and continue donating to politicians and organizations that support their business, rather than just those who follow what the left wants them to do. What can we expect? Well, with me now to talk about this is Steve Suckup, the vice president and publisher of the Political Forum and author of Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. Steve, welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, Steve, we are glad to have you. Now, Laura Weiss wrote this uh, article in RollCall.com specifically about Pfizer and the abortion industry. And you've spent a lot of time studying corporate political activism. What do you think is going on here?
0: Well, I I think that what we're seeing is the abortion industry um, trying to take advantage of uh, the current – uh, unrest uh, among certain uh, corporate leaders with respect to various other issues. Um, the abortion issue was hot in this, in the field of, of corporate behavior and uh, corporate investing uh, back in 2019 uh, after Georgia, um, it's always Georgia, they pick on Georgia no matter yes. what, uh, passed a fetal heartbeat law, uh, but largely it's been, it's been a silent issue for a couple of years, and this year it's back, and I think it's because Uh, A lot of uh, the abortion advocates are trying to piggyback on the uh, enthusiasm for the ESG investing movement and and the general uh, uptick in uh, interest in political and social behavior by corporations.
1: You know, it's interesting because most of the, what would I say, kind of the the corporate activism, it seems, in recent years, has been kind of on LGBT issues, whether there's a RIFRA or some kind of... um, Um, you know, debate over sexual orientation, gender identity law, more recently like women's sports laws. That's where kind of the corporate left really gets going. Why isn't that they haven't been activated in the same way on abortion issues?
0: Well, by and large, because uh, their views on abortion are a minority view. Um, uh, They can claim at least Uh, that everybody is opposed to hate and everybody is opposed to discrimination as general concepts. But uh, their beliefs on abortion are are not only minority beliefs but are are growing more and more uh, distasteful to – even among uh, Gen Z and millennials – Uh, to a more and more significant percentage of the population. So I don't think they want to advertise that that's what they're after because that seems like a much bigger stretch uh, than anything else that that corporate activists have, have been pursuing.
1: You know i 'm in, inclined to agree with you there, and in one sense it 's encouraging because I think the culture is coming the the right direction, and I mean that literally not just metaphorically right. um, but uh, but we do have work to do still on the sexual revolution issues and that that divide I think is real now. Um, the article talked about shareholder proposals and how those are being used as political leverage. Can you explain how shareholders are doing that?
0: Well, sure, um, anybody who holds uh, a certain amount of a stock in a company uh, and has held it for a certain period of time and, and it depends and it varies and the sec tried to change the rules this past fall and the, the biden sec is trying to change it back and so it's you know the, the specifics are a little convoluted but anybody who holds a stock for a certain period of time can file a resolution uh and if the resolution is deemed germane by the company uh, or if the company objects and it's deemed germane by the sec then it has to appear uh, on their uh, proxy statement for the year, which is sent out to all shareholders who have an opportunity to vote uh, on these questions. Should, for example, uh, Pfizer be forced to disclose all of its political donations? The, and that's the issue in uh, the article uh, that you referenced before. Um, and, and so that goes out to shareholders, and, and everybody gets a chance to vote. And the management of the corporation gets a chance to say whether or not they're for or against uh, this proposal. And usually um, most proposals are supported – are are voted on in a manner that that agrees with what the management and the board of directors would like, Uh, but not always. Uh, And that's where – well, capitalism has sort of its its biggest impact is the influence of activists – be they you know just political activists who buy shares of stock simply for the purpose uh, of affecting a corporation's behavior or asset management activists who who attempt to change behaviors of corporations over long term uh, they have the ability to uh, change they have enough leverage to change the way corporations behave uh, and if they can't change the corporation's behavior they can change the leaders or uh, the directors and, and that's sort of been the big difference over the past five years uh, as to why uh, corporations are going woke is is this new surge in activism that allows them the power to push back against uh, boards and management.
1: Does it take a lot of shareholders or just some highly motivated shareholders to
0: do that? Well, it depends on how many shares we're talking about. Um, If if you want, for example, uh, to uh, force a company to, Uh, change its position on fossil fuels and to start preparing for a zero-carbon future, uh, and you get three asset management firms, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, the big three passive firms on your side, then you probably have in the neighborhood of 20 to 30% of all shares outstanding uh, voting in your your favor. So, you know, just three firms, uh, and you've almost got uh, what you need to to get your uh, proposal passed. Uh, So it it depends an awful lot um, on who is in favor of this and and what type of issue it is.
1: Is there an opportunity to push back for people who may be on the other side of this issue among the shareholder group?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And that's one of the things that people need to understand about when these things get political is that if you engage, you can push back. You can reverse engineer what the left is doing.
1: Very quickly, with respect to Pfizer and this issue, how's that going to end, do you think?
0: Well, I I think, uh, and I don't think they announced the results yesterday, but I think they're going to have this is going to be defeated, but they'll probably continue to push year after year.
1: Because they do push year after year, don't they? Stephen Sukup, thank you so much for your time.
0: Yep, thank you. Appreciate it. And
1: we are going to continue to track this issue as well because they do. They push eternally, it seems. And coming up, we're going to approach. We are approaching President Biden's hundredth day in office. Talk about some highlights. Are there any lowlights? After the break.
7: Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up-to-date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard, by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the app store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app.
8: As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, It is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org slash worldview. That's frc.org slash
9: worldview.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. With just a few days left before President Biden marks his 100th day in office, Family Research Council has released a new resource titled Tracking the Biden Administration that details the 62 total executive actions taken. Yes, 62. He's probably got writer's cramp by this point in his first 100 days, including the 32 that undermine the sanctity of life, family, and religious freedom. With me now to talk about this new resource and what we need to know about this administration is Travis Weber, FRC's Vice President for Public Policy and Government Affairs. Travis, glad to have you back. Thank you very much. So tell us some, um, what are the highlights, what are the points of emphasis as we track the first 100 days?
9: Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at a resource like this, to put it in context, we have to go back to the accomplishments that President Trump, the Trump administration, achieved on these issues of importance to social conservatives. Um, You know, a lot of folks may not know how much the Trump administration did to advance life, protect unborn life, protect the family, advance religious liberty at home and abroad. Now we look at a lot of these achievements being rolled back. Uh, you know, and and folks can see the many, many accomplishments of the Trump administration at the list that we've maintained on our page, frcaction.org slash Biden, comparing that to what Biden has done. So if we look at what Biden has done released today as we prepare for the 100 day uh, uh, marker next week. We see a total of 62 total executive actions, memoranda, other actions, executive orders, including 32 on these matters of life, family, and freedom, many of them very significant, having a number of kind of sub-steps as part of the policy that impact the issues that we care about adversely. So the, the bottom line here is the Biden administration is bad on protecting unborn life. It's bad on the abortion question bad on uh, radical progressive policies, advancing uh, all sorts of far-left policies on family and sexuality issues that affect religious freedom, and bad on protecting religious freedom. I mean, that's the bottom line. When you look at these 32 actions, we can talk about them more in detail, but folks just need to know he does not have a good record, and we knew this going in. He does not have a good record on, on these issues. Travis, were you able to get any comments from Evangelicals for Life for this resource, how they're feeling 100 days in? We, we were not able to get comments on this, but, you know, I think okay. there's a significant disconnect when it comes to, you know, what what those who would say they support Biden, but also pro-life. You can't look at this and line up, connect the dots. It doesn't make sense that we've got, you know, just looking at this resource now, a uh, dozen or so major anti-life actions here. Rolling back the Title 10 rule Trump put in place, funding plan paradigm, it. Biden's basically said, look. I want to open up the call first for planned parroting and government funding, rolling back the the, the good steps we had taken to protect life internationally through the Geneva Consensus Declaration, rolling back what's known as the Mexico City policy, which under Trump was actually even broader than the traditional Mexico City policy, protecting life on international assistance, among other steps. Um, It's a major issue when you you look at this administration and pro-lifers need to grapple with this.
1: And sadly, none of it is surprising, or at least should be surprising, because he's basically doing exactly what he promised to do. And, and the election was indeed about the things that we thought it was about. One of the things that the, and actually, Travis, before I get to the next question, can you remind people where they can get this resource? What's the website?
9: Yeah. So this is up at frcaction.org slash Biden. Uh, easy to remember. Everything's on that page.
1: Great. Now, it also covers appointments. Talk to us about the, the significance of the appointments and what the result of those appointments have been.
9: Yeah. So we the reason we put this uh, sub page up at this at this resource is to to note that it's not just President Biden, Vice President Harris, who are, are accomplishing all this. It's significant cabinet level appointments, uh, appointments at the sub secretary level. So assistant secretaries and others. Who are doing a lot of the very aggressive policy work against social conservative positions, um, this is our attempt to detail um, and track the negative effect that these appointments will have, so you 'll see bios for key appointments um, you know and I want to note that this is all this is all you know it 's sad that we have to track this, but people need to be aware of what these 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 appointees nominees, um, many of whom have been confirmed at this point, are doing on our issues, which is not good. Um, personnel is policy. This is our attempt to track what Biden is going to do in addition to tracking the steps he's taken. You know, I think I, I can't emphasize this enough at this point because so many other issues get thrown in the mix. You know, there's a lot of issues and people talk, look at a presidential campaign, looking at the manner in which the, um, the the candidates speak, the manner in which the president now engages on the issues. What matters at the end of the day, significantly, what's often overlooked is what concretely is done on policy. And on that, the record is is clear. Uh, Biden is bad on life, family and freedom. People need to know that. And that's what we're attempting to do by pointing them to this page. And, and it
1: illustrates the.
9: it reminds us
1: of the fact that when you elect a president, you jo- don't just elect a president. You would elect an entire administration. Now, Travis has The has Biden,
9: the president, been different than Biden, the candidate was in any significant way? Uh, No, I think he's largely he's largely uh, uh, fulfilled the very radical policy uh, prescriptions that he's proposed. Now, he has said it made a big deal about unity, but in that sense, it's not lining up because his policies are ununifying. They're divisive. In how radical and far-left they are. So in that sense, people need to know, need to be aware of how radical the policies are that he's pushing to be able to see through the claims of unity we often hear.
1: Travis Weber, thank you so much for joining us and for putting this resource together. Appreciate it very, very much. Thank
9: you.
2: And
1: again, one reminder, you can find that at frcaction.org slash biden. Coming up, we're going to talk about how to think biblically about identity and how the way we think about identity affects equality. We'll talk about it next. Get a trusted
10: perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President... Tony Perkins, live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com.
8: Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe.
6: The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework the stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex gender identity and sexual orientation the real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion the equality act would mandate government imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law, and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org
10: equalityact equality act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution visit FRC.org slash Nigeria.
7: Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, Visit frc.org/slash planned parenthood facts.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. As we close out the week and send you into your, what I hope is going to be an awesome, restful, wonderful weekend with your family. And we are again going to have a conversation with David Clausen, who's the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. Every Wednesday on the FRC blog, and you can find that at frcblog.com, we write an article on Wednesday to help you think biblically about something. It's part of the Center for Biblical Worldview at FRC that David and I are both a part of and cuz we want to help you think biblically about the world. And this week we chose the topic of identity. And we picked this topic because identity is a buzzword. It's actually a whole it's a whole category of of, uh, of politics, right? We call this identity politics, where people are dissected and bifurcated across all sorts of different categories and then they are uh, leveraged against each other in various ways during every campaign cycle to make sure that we maximize our political opportunities. Is it healthy or is it not? With us to talk about it is David Kloss. And David, welcome back.
11: It's great to be on the show again with you, Joseph. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, let's start off by just tell me Your thoughts, why do you think identity has become such an issue? Do you think it's more political because it's convenient because you can practice the, you know, the the politics of just division and getting people into your camp? Or do you think there's something underneath it that's more like just personal because people are actually wrestling with identity?
11: I think it's almost both, Joseph. I think the the, the question of identity, because you know we, we use words here in, in these Friday segments, and we want to define what they mean. You know, when we're asking the question of identity, we're asking the question, you know, who are you? Who is someone? Well, you know, what constitutes who you are at that that fundamental level? And I, I think um, what we now call identity politics has been going on for a long time. The Bible kind of talks. About the different categories that even in the Bible times people were coming up with, but I do think that what we now call identity politics has become exacerbated. You have rich versus poor, a country versus city, men versus women, white versus black, Republican versus Democrat, educated versus uneducated, old versus young, and I think that you know we we are in such a divisive time right now that these secondary things, the, these things that make us different. Have really risen to the fore, and I think they are being exploited by opportunists. And I think that a lot of the the things that we see that are wrong in society can be traced uh, to what we now call identity politics. And I think there's uh, obviously a whole spiritual component to this, but that's that's how at least I look at it initially.
1: Well, I think I think there's some comfort there for me in in the, you pointing out the fact that this isn't really new, and that. Scripture talks about all sorts of divisions. There was, you know, Jew and Gentile. There was free and slave. There was man and woman, which was a bigger deal then than it is now. And it's a big deal now. Right. And and that was at a time where people weren't doing this for political purposes because there weren't elections that were being leveraged. So people were divided. Long before there were elections that division became kind of helpful for in some cases. And and to me, that just speaks to the fact, and I, I think this also speaks into the race conversation, that because we're sinners, because we're prideful, we're always looking for ways to, or reasons to think that we're better than somebody else. Do you think that's true?
11: No, I think it is. I think we're always, uh, even if we're not even conscious of it or not, sometimes we, we because we're sinners, because we're fallen, we are asking. You know, I think we, we see the world through that selfish lens, um, and that's often manifested. And you write about this in your, your blog, Joseph. Uh, we, we kind of think about how are we better or how how are we different? And when we say different, okay, if you're a different skin color a different socioeconomic status or you're older or you're younger, because you're different, therefore – you're, you're inferior to me. I think
1: that thinking is just very pervasive. When it comes to identity, and, and I'll get personal for a second just because I think this is a good way of illustrating this. When somebody says, who are you, what's your answer to that question?
11: My answer to that question, as I thought about it, is I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think when it – because, again, the question of identity, who are you at the most basic fundamental level – And for me, Joseph, uh, because I have uh, decided to uh, follow Jesus, to me, that is what is most fundamental about who I am. I am a Christian. I'm someone who is made in God's
1: image.
9: Yeah.
1: Well, I think we'll probably both agree you are not normal. So let's just let you be, I mean, and and of course I mean that in the most wonderful way, but you you do not represent the average human, much less the average American, probably, because you know, most of them are not seminarians and, and lifelong Christians, right? So how do you think most people answer that question? How do they think about it? If somebody says, who are you, what's the most common way to answer that question?
11: Oh, I think uh, a couple of things you've already mentioned, Joseph, whether it's uh, someone might say, well, I'm a a male, I'm white, I'm educated, I'm heterosexual versus homosexual. I think uh, I'm uh, Caucasian versus I'm black or I'm Hispanic. I think those are some of the basic divisions that we see that people – You know, those aren't just just descriptors about them, secondary characteristics. Those are things that go to how they view themselves and how they want others to view them.
1: And and I think another category that that you didn't mention that I think is really meaningful for a lot of people is what they are occupationally. What's their profession? A lot of people, they are defined by what they do professionally, their role in the world, um, how successful they are or in some cases how successful they aren't because, you know, we talk – we can talk about – uh, these identities in a positive way, but people also carry really negative identities I think with them as well of i am abandoned i'm uh, mm-hmm. i'm unworthy i'm neglected those things that that Satan is also trying to throw into our minds to devalue us and to condemn us and to make us feel like you know we 're not worth loving and we 're not worth um, fighting for, and that we don't have anything meaningful to contribute to the world so i think there is both kind of the the outward like am i gay or am i straight question in a lot of people unfortunately identify uh through their lgbt status however they want to label that but also people just identify as you know i can't and that that statement that people make is just i'm just not capable but why what why are those? I and actually, I'm to, before I ask answer this question. I want to mention a point that is raised in the blog that I think is important and get you some feedback on this because I've teased this question, and I and I talk about this in the blog this week. Is when the reason why I think identifying yourself primarily as a as a man as a woman uh, by by your age by your race. The reason I think those things are um, Problematic is because if we are identifying ourselves by something superficial or something that by virtue of our, um, like the, those identity thing rather than who God made us to be, I'm of the opinion that it totally undermines equality because, and I want to see if you agree with me here, people actually aren't equal in a very practical sense. We don't have the same intelligence. We don't have the same capabilities. We're not equally good looking. We're not equally fast. We're not equally strong. Are we actually equal if we were not created equal?
11: No, not at all, Joseph. And I think that's an excellent point that you make in the blog. But, you know, I meet people all the time, and, you know, it's just true whether we have different athletic abilities or just physical attraction or cognitive abilities. You know We are simply on so many different indicators not equal, and therefore uh, that, that's where the, the, the human temptation – again, we live in a fallen world. That's when we start putting up the divisions between us based on those secondary characteristics. And again, uh, you pointed out this in the, the blog. Uh, some of the worst tragedies we've seen in the 20th and 21st century have been a result of making these secondary differences between us primary – Uh, And I think that is uh, what definitely undermines equality, Um, and I'm sure you're going here, but that's where the Christian worldview gives a different word. That's where a Christian worldview gives us a different answer because it has a category that levels the playing field across all of us and does make us equal.
1: And what is that category?
11: It's the fact that we are made in the image of God. This is what the Bible teaches in Genesis 1 and 2, and I know theologians debate exactly what does it mean to be made in God's image But fundamentally, and I think almost all theologians would agree with this, it means that somehow we are uh, uniquely created by God to reflect him to the rest of creation in a way that no animal or no plant uh, can do. But all people, by virtue of being created like God, uh, are therefore, when it comes down to the most fundamental levels, we are equal.
1: And because that is true that's why i think it's counterproductive for those who fight most aggressively for equality quote unquote however you define that to also be the ones who are focused most fervently on a superficial identity i'm actually of the opinion that if we are not created equal if we if we were not if we are not if our value doesn't come from the fact that we were created in god's image There's no argument to be made that people are actually equal. And in that world, especially things like infanticide and genocide, if if we give people their value based on what they contribute to the world, what is the argument that severely disabled people should not be euthanized? Because they, in in many cases, they can't contribute, quote-unquote, anything... Of, of material value to the world, they're just sucking resources. So isn't it logical in that case to say, well, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to put you to sleep and then you're not going to be a burden to us and life isn't going to be a burden to you.
11: No, it's true, Joseph. There's, there's you know, I study Christian ethics, actually, um, in my Ph.D. program, and there are whole ethical systems uh, that would, uh, the, the logic of it, even if it's uncomfortable for those systems to acknowledge is that if you do have some mental or physical limitation, that somehow your life actually is uh, inherently not as valuable as someone who is healthier or who is stronger or who has sharper mental categories. And again, that's why Scripture gives us, you know, where, where do we get our personhood from? and in personhood at the end of the day there has to be some objective criteria this is this is in the abortion debate people will argue that the unborn are actually not persons therefore they don't have a right to life well again as, as christians the criteria that we have to work with it, it is objective criteria that says all of us are made in god's image all of us have this personhood component in in common with one another and therefore I might be smarter than you, uh, I might be more athletic or, or less athletic or, or, or whatever, the secondary thing that divides us, but we are all still equal. And again, that's what the Christian worldview allows us to
1: see. And I think it's important at this point in this conversation to, to highlight the fact that it is not wrong to identify in part in the ways that God has made us. Because he did make us male and he made us female and those are different and we can celebrate that. And he did make us differently pigmented. Our skin colors are different and our sizes are different and our, and our abilities are different. Some of us are athletes. Some of us are artists. Some of us are short. Some of us are tall, right? And so there's no reason to deny the fact that you might be shorter or taller or blacker or whiter or whatever that is. And those are things that all reflect God's image because we've been made in his image. The challenge is, if we identify primarily by one of those characteristics, if I am, before everything else, if I see myself as a white person, if that is the defining characteristic about me, because I am Caucasian, then anyone who does not share that with me, I see them as somehow different from me, which creates automatic division between me and them, because in the thing that's most important to me, you are different than me however if the most important thing about me is that i am created in the image of god and that's how i see myself first then every single other person i ever encounter in life will have that in common with me so it's automatically unifying and i think the challenge we're seeing in the in the identity issue today is that most people primarily identify with something that is inherently divisive. And that's part of the reason we see so much division is because I'm this and you're not and she's that and I'm not and therefore we're just different. And so the things that set us apart are what we highlight first. Do you think that's fair?
11: I do, and I think that the Scripture uh, gives us these categories, Joseph. Um, although those secondary characteristics like gender and occupation and uh, ethnicity are important, they still have to be subservient to one's primary identity in Christ. And that that's how us as Christians need to be thinking about these things. And I'll commend the fifth paragraph of your blog, Joseph, that's, that talks about the importance of our identity in Christ as being the first and foremost thing that defines us. Yeah.
1: And, and actually, we, we don't have time to read this, but uh, for, your, for your scripture reading over the weekend, go to the first chapter of Ephesians, and it's verses mostly 3 through 14, which is maybe the best description of who we are in Christ that exists in scripture. Um, David, for somebody who's listening to this and, and might be wrestling with this and how they see themselves, is it possible to change your identity?
11: If you're a Christian, it's not. Uh, If you're a Christian, Joseph, you are welcomed, you are redeemed, accepted, adopted, forgiven, loved, called, justified, and sanctified. And that's why uh, I think it's important as believers to offer this gospel message. And uh, that is ultimately, uh, that cannot be changed. If you are in Christ, you're with him, and your eternity is secure.
1: I I think you make a good point. I'm going to phrase it one other way, but we have about a minute left here, so you'll have to be uh, kind of quick, but... Do you think it's, can we change the way we see ourselves despite how God sees us? Because I think sometimes God says that things are true about us, but we don't see ourselves that way. Can that change? I think the perception
11: we have of ourselves can change if we're seeing things through the lens that God gives us through his word.
1: And that is exactly what we must all endeavor to do. David Clausen, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate your wisdom. Thank you, and Joseph. for the rest of you, I hope it has been beneficial. See yourself the way God does. Again, Ephesians chapter 1 will be edifying to you as you wander, wander into this wonderful, wonderful weekend. Be blessed. Watch, Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you
0: by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit tonyperkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 372 7234 That's 1-866-372-7234.